seriously. And so we have to find ways to be in our own bodies and feel what's going on. Maybe that is the core principle. The core Lee is to be here now. I'm Michael Max, and this is Geological, the podcast that curates East Asian medicine and methods through the power of conversation. Spirillic. I have a patient who is playful with language. She constantly delights me with making up words. The other day, she described her situation as spirillic, spirillic, as in spiraling, as in going in circles, but not the circles of this same old thing with no change, but more that it was a steady theme, but it had a different direction, motion and trajectory. She, in essence, is capable of noticing both what is the same and what is different as her life and her situation changes through time. If you've spent any time at all in practice, you've no doubt noticed that patients will often point to how nothing has changed because, once again, they're suffering the trouble that brought them in your door. But often enough, it's not quite the same trouble that they started out with. Even if it does rhyme with it, it's not gone and erased from their awareness, but it sings a different tune. The promise of medicine, especially modern medicine, is that we're going to make your problem go away or medicate it in such a way that you can live symptom-free. Yes, for certain issues, that might be possible. But for many ailments, well, it's not like installing a new set of brake pads or downloading a software upgrade. Entirely too often, we take the mechanical models of the world that we've built around ourselves and think that mechanics applies to biology. It doesn't. We're unfolding, evolving beings. We are not endpoints, but emergent process. And the growth edges tend to be spiral in nature. Look out into the world. You won't find straight lines or right angles. Everything, it's circular, branched, or emergently enfolded. As much as our modern story of DNA is that it's a blueprint, in reality, it looks more like a melody. At one level of active investigation, we see life moving in a linear fashion. But zoom out, it's circular. We can place our attention on what's missing or on what's present. Both are a slice of the whole. Each will open your perception in very different ways. So my patient noting her spirillic process, that there is change that is noted over the trajectory of time, it's helpful. And it's helpful because all too often, I want to see miraculous change in my patients. There's a deep sense of satisfaction that goes along with the feeling of being helpful. It feels great having a sense of competency. But often enough, while people can change and heal, it's not overnight. It's through unfolding. It's spirillic. With East Asian medicine, we are constantly looking for, as Gregory Bateson would say, the pattern that connects. We are looking for how the body and mind entangle in ways that produce well-being or illness, because if we understand the problem, then it's easier to intervene in helpful and effective ways. In this conversation with Jason Robertson and Stephen Brown, we discuss the character Li, which, in the simplest terms is the pattern of color that runs through a piece of jade. But as with so many Chinese characters, 
There's a lot more to discuss. And in particular, with this discussion, we wander into how Lee relates to the body in all the ways that we are a conglomeration of multiple connections and systems. You don't have to know Chinese to practice Chinese medicine, but at times it can be helpful when trying to understand the thinking and physiology that goes into practicing our medicine. There are some ideas that are integrative, but they've got nothing to do with integrative medicine. We'll get into all this in a moment. Stay with us. These conversations come to you through the generous support of our sponsors and members. All the sponsors here provide helpful products or services that you'll find beneficial in your clinical work. Worried that an EMR is too complex for you? Jane has friendly and knowledgeable support. Mayway Herbs is celebrating the 55th year of their family business. You're invited to make use of their vast library of resources. Are you concerned about the health of Mother Earth? AccuFast Needles is doing something about that. You can too. And later in the show, Ancestral Sturman offers up a sinew treatment, and the folks at Blue Poppy have something special to share as well. Do be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website to take advantage of all the special offers our terrific sponsors have for listeners of the podcast. Hi folks, I'm Yvonne Lau, president of Mayway Herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year, and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. Please visit mayway.com to find the perfect Pumsar brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM. Learn about treatment strategies and powerful herbal remedies. As we welcome the month of May, our focus is on women's health. Our newsletter articles and podcast episodes this month will highlight different aspects and unique challenges women face. So subscribe or tune in. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our women's health formulas this month. Just visit Mayway.com. This season and every season, trust Mayway Herbs for your health and wellness needs. And thank you for supporting Real Chinese Medicine. I love how technology can help to automate my office. And I want to share with you my favorite tool for doing so, Jane. Jane is a clinic management software in EMR with a human touch. Whether you're switching your software or going paperless for the first time, the Jane team knows that the onboarding process can feel a little overwhelming. That's why with Jane, you don't just get software, you get a whole team. Included in every Jane subscription is their award-winning customer support available by phone, email, and chat whenever you need it, even Saturdays. You can also book a free account setup consultation to review your account and ensure you feel confident about going live. If you're interested in making the switch to Jane, head to jane.app/switch to book a one-on-one -on -one demo with a member of their support team. And be sure to mention the code Geological at the time of sign up for a one-month grace period on your new Jane account. I don't know about you, but sometimes I take a step back and marvel at my acupuncture needles. I mean, they're the world's simplest medical tool, a sharpened wire and a handle. That's it. And with this simple tool, hundreds of health conditions can be resolved. I love it. What I didn't love 
was the amount of packaging waste I generated at the end of the day. But that has now changed too. Ever since I switched to AccuFast Earth-Friendly Needles, I reduced my packaging waste by 90%. Not only are they a great needle, but the folks at AccuFast plant a tree for every two boxes of needles I use in the clinic. By switching to AccuFast Needles, you'll be helping patients, planting trees, and joining a community of practitioners changing the world. Like our simple needle, being a part of this solution, it's simple too. Visit AccuFastNeedles.com slash Geological to learn how. Welcome to Shop Talk. In this portion of the podcast, we are bringing you roughly 15 minutes of practical clinical methods, perspectives, and advice that has its work boots on. This section is all about practical material that you can begin to investigate the next time that you walk into clinic. Additionally, visit the show notes page for supporting materials from this week's guest on Shop Talk. All right, roll up your sleeves. Let's get to work. Hello, my name is Anthony Vondermull, and I'm a licensed acupuncturist. And in today's shop talk, I'd like to offer some critical safety advice regarding needling gallbladder 21 in the upper trapezius region generally that you may not have heard before. My advice comes from having served as an expert witness over the last 15 years on a half dozen cases in which well-intentioned and experienced acupuncturists who were trained according to the current standards of the profession nonetheless caused pneumothorax injuries, and one of them was fatal. What's an expert witness? An expert witness is a neutral professional who reviews evidence and renders opinions in a court proceeding as to whether the acupuncturist's care was up to the standards of the profession, and if not, whether the substandard practice contributed to injuries, pain, and suffering. Reviewing these cases has caused me to go back to the clean needle technique manual and question some commonly taught, widely practiced, but now I believe unsafe techniques and adapt them in my own practice, replacing them with safer needling angles and depths, as well as screening protocols and other strategies that are much better at preventing pneumothoraxes and yet just as effective at achieving my clinical goals, if not more so. So unfortunately, it's not just dry needlers and MDs who cause pneumothoraxes, but they are avoidable. So the big picture here consists of four steps. Screen for risk-elevating presentations and adapt your treatment accordingly. Second, provide informed consent to your patients about pneumothoraxes prior to treatment, including educating them about the signs and symptoms so that they recognize the pneumothorax if it occurs. Third, specific techniques when needling gallbladder 21 in the upper trapezius region generally, most of which you can actually apply to anywhere over the thoracic cavity. And fourth, uh, the critical step of managing, if despite all your efforts, you do cause a pneumothorax accidentally, of managing it appropriately so that there's no progression to things like lung infections, you know, permanent loss of lung volume, at worst case scenario, death, okay? So let's go into these one at a time in a little more detail. Screening. This is what I learned from going back to the Clean Needle Technique Manual, seventh edition, which is available as a free download, easy to find on the web. First of all, here's the mnemonic I developed to help me remember this. So it needs to be in our intake forms, but also in our verbal intake because patients don't always report accurately and everything on a written intake form. So we should always screen verbally for these things. Here's my mnemonic. Always review history and symptoms before rendering care. So the first letter's there. 
stand for A-R-H-S-B-R-C, which stands for A for age, progressive past middle age. The older the patient, the higher the risk. R stands for respiratory disease, COPD, emphysema, tuberculosis, cystic fibrosis, sarcoidosis, lung cancer, asthma, any chronic respiratory disease elevates the risk of pneumothorax. H stands for history, history of spontaneous pneumothorax. I once had a patient tell me on my intake that they'd had five previous pneumos. So I had to tell the patient, we're not needling anywhere over your thoracic cavity, the risk is too great. S stands for smoking. Smoking any substance increases the risk of pneumothorax. And what smoking and respiratory disease have in common is that both of them can produce anomalous protrusions of lung tissue outside the rib cage. And I learned this the hard way uh, when treating a, uh, in my first few years of practice, I had an older male smoker who came in for treatment. I was doing some needling along the Wato Jaji line using about a one and a half inch needle, but needling in a, what I thought would be a safe angle towards the spine, uh, sort of towards the tailbone and spine. Came back the next week, said, you know, I had this funny thing happen where since I saw you last, I, when I coughed, laughed, sneezed, talked, I felt this pain in my upper back and I called my doctor about it and he didn't know what to make of it and just went away on its own, but I just thought I should report it to you. And I said, well, are you doing okay now? And he's like, yeah, I'm fine. And, you know, he didn't seem to have any respiratory distress, no other signs or symptoms. So I avoided treating that region from that point forward on him. Then I called up a doctor friend of mine immediately after that visit was over. And I said, hey, Dave, what was that a pneumo? And he said, yeah, almost certainly you caused a small pneumo. You're just lucky that it spontaneously self-resolved. And I said, well, why? I mean, I, I thought I was you know, needling in a safe angle and depth. And he's like, well, smokers, they can have these protrusions of very friable, you know, delicate lung tissue outside the rib cage. Same thing with any chronic respiratory disease. Okay, lesson learned. Moving on. So B stands for body type. Tall, thin, muscle atrophy, little tissue over the thorax raises the risk for obvious reasons. R stands for rare three conditions which I learned from the CNT manual, the first being Marfan syndrome, a genetic connective tissue disorder that makes for a small, sorry, a tall, thin thoracic uh, body. Think Abraham Lincoln, thin and gangly. Second, homocystinuria. Third, endometriosis. Endometriosis is not so rare, so we should definitely be screening for that. And then finally, C stands for corticosteroid use, either internal or topical, raises the risk of pneumothorax. So if you see these, you know, the more of these risk factors present, the less uh, you should be needling over the thoracic cavity and choose other strategies to achieve your clinical goals. Nonetheless, sometimes there's a patient who has, you know, one of these risk factors or a couple of them, and they're in significant neck pain, and the upper trapezius is a very useful region to needle. So here are some safety considerations. This is very important in this region because apparently, according to CNT manual, 30% of pneumothorax injuries come from needling gallbladder 21, okay? But as it is very useful for treating neck pain, here are some safety considerations. Position the patient's side lying so that the pleural cavity falls away from the needle tip. If I have a patient with right-sided neck pain, I put them lying on their left side, and then that gives me a couple extra centimeters of safety margin because the lung cavity is you know, flexible and will, gravity will pull it down towards the table away from my needle tip. Second, when choosing a needle length, consider that retained needles can migrate inwards up to the handle. And CNT manual says don't use a needle anything longer than 20 millimeters over the thoracic cavity. I believe even more important than needle length though is needle angle. And the safest angles are transverse, just under the surface of the skin, 
The upper trapezius is a very superficial muscle just beneath the subcutaneous fascia. You don't need to needle deeply to have an effect on it. And also, if you look at a skeleton model, you'll see that medial to lateral and anterior to posterior are also much safer, and that's due to the flare and the angle of the ribs, okay? Whatever you do, don't needle perpendicularly. And this is the, what I was taught and shown in the master's level training that I received, but it's very unsafe because the dome of the lung, the apex, the highest point of the lung is actually right under gallbladder 21, and a perpendicular angle, even with a short needle, runs a high risk of puncturing the lung. So I tell this to acupuncturists and say, well, how else do you draw the, the chi downwards? Well, what about kidney one? What about liver three? What about stomach 43? Those are some of my favorite points, you know, gallbladder 41, kidney six, kidney seven, look at your TCM text, have the patient meditate and whatever. And there's lots of ways to draw the chi down, but we don't want to cause pneumothoraxes by using a perpendicular angle at gallbladder 21. Next technique, Number four is grasp the upper trapezius and pull it away from the underlying scapula and uh, rib cage and lung, okay? Some patients, the upper trap is just too tight to do this, but whenever possible, I like to grasp the fibers of the upper trap and pull it away from the lung cage, hold it between my fingers while I insert the needle, and that gives me an extra margin of safety. And then finally, whatever else you do, limit the depth of penetration of the needle to less than 15 millimeters and don't penetrate into the region that is less than three finger width superior to the clavicle. And you know, it really helps here to think instead of two-dimensional acupuncture points, we really need to be thinking in three dimensions about a living human body with its three-dimensional tissue. And so to review those safety considerations, you know, first of all, number one is avoid needling at all in patients with you know, elevated risk factors in this region, okay? But the other five safety considerations that I mentioned, position the patient side-lying and needle the, the upside and let the gravity pull the lungs away towards the table. Second, choose a needle that is less than 20 millimeters in length, particularly if you do choose to needle perpendicularly. But third, don't needle perpendicularly. Choose a transverse, a very shallow insertion, angled uh, medially to laterally or anterior to posteriorly. And then fourth, grasp fibers of the upper trapezius, pull it away before inserting your needle. Um, and then fifth and last, limit your vertical depth of penetration to less than 15 millimeters and don't penetrate into the region three finger widths superior to the clavicle, okay? So let's take a step backwards to informed consent. This is a crucial step prior to ins in your first needle insertion. Uh, we should always inform our patients about the risks of medical treatment. And that's not widely practiced or well taught in our profession, but nonetheless, it's the safest and best thing to do. So I always tell my patients right on the first visit where I'm needling over the thoracic region, there is a risk that the needle will puncture the lung. And I want you to know about this, here's why, because I, I, if you develop any of the following signs or symptoms after acupuncture treatment, for that matter, after any, you know, an MD doing a cortisone injection, a vaccination, uh, uh, you know, any procedure involving needles or a sharp object over the thoracic cavity, you should know that these signs and symptoms should not be dismissed. You should, in fact, call 911. So the most severe ones, the ones that really indicate an immediate 911 call are, are three. Tachypnea, tachycardia, and cyanosis. Elevated respiratory rate, elevated heart rate, and cyanosis, bluish discoloration of the skin and face, okay? These indicate that the patient is running a severe oxygen deficit, going into organ failure, and that death is not far away, okay? But any painful, difficult, reduced respiration, shortness of breath, 
Uh, these can all indicate a pneumothorax injury. And pain in the torso generally after kneeling over the torso, uh, if it's worse on inhalation, sudden local pain or popping sensation when inserting the needle, uh, new pain that wasn't present prior to needling, pain in locations where no needle was inserted, a dry hacking cough, typically the pain is kind of sharp pricking and stabbing, and it's also typically worse with coughing, laughing, sneezing, or talking, okay? And then lightheadedness, incoordination, disorientation, malaise, fatigue. These can happen after any acupuncture treatment, treating anywhere in the body. But here's what's different about a pneumothorax is that these generalized malaise symptoms don't go away. They get worse with time. And they don't get better simply by lying down, drinking a little water, or having a snack. So clean needle technique manual advises us, and this is the standard for the profession, upon suspicion of a pneumothorax, we should immediately call 911. And that's because a delay in diagnosis and rendering emergency care elevates the risk of serious complications such as you know, long-term uh, loss of respiratory volume, lung infection, and death. So despite all these safety precautions, say you do unfortunately cause a pneumothorax. The final step, manage. Go into emergency management mode. And what's been a common feature of the, uh, the cases that I've worked on as an expert witness is that the acupuncturists did the opposite. They went into denial mode which resulted in a delay of care and complications that could have been avoided by simply treating the patient as you would treat your, your own spouse, your child, your parent, uh, your best friend. Go, oh, oh I'm, this, I'm sorry, this is a very serious situation, but we need to be over at the ER right away. You call 911 or they call 911. Somebody needs to call 911 and get that patient to the ER. Okay, so Taking a step back, hopefully we don't reach that scenario because we've done these other things to be very careful. We have screened for risk elevating factors and, L and adapted our presentation accordingly. We have done our informed consent and educated the patient about the signs and symptoms of a pneumothorax even before our first needle insertion. We've used our five safety techniques when needling gallbladder 21 or the upper trapezius region. And then finally, if God forbid we do cause a pneumothorax anyway, we manage appropriately. So if you'd like to learn more about all this, I invite you to go to my website at www.aomprofessional.com where I have a distance learning class and also a, teach a live class in safe needling practices for this important body region of the head, neck, and thorax. I also have an ebook on managing uh, your risks of malpractice and avoiding malpractice, which I'm also by later this year, 2023, intending to turn into a series of short safety and ethics classes to get your NCC AOM PDAs. And then finally, I highly recommend spending a little time on a volunteer-run website called acupunctursafety.net, where acupuncturists can anonymously upload reports of adverse uh, injuries and accidents that come out of their acupuncture practice. It's a great learning resource, something we should all be learning from and also doing should you uh, have an adverse reaction or incident, even if you don't think you caused it, it's, it's very instructive to read these reports, okay? So thank you for your time and attention. I hope this keeps you and your patients safe. Jason Robertson, Stephen Brown, welcome back to Geological. Thank you, Michael. Thank you. Hey, you know, originally I was going to have a conversation with Jason on, on a subject that we're about to get into, and then somewhere along the way, Jason was like, you know, we should get Stephen Brown in on this. And I thought, that's a good idea. You know, one of the things that I deeply miss about living in Seattle is that I can like take a stroll with a couple of my Chinese medicine buddies around Green Lake 
and just jabber for a while. So here we are, virtual walk around Green Lake. Well, the addition of Stephen came from a walk we did here in Seattle. So it is appropriate that he join us on this walk, I think, Michael. Uh, that's why we're all here together. So the topic, it's kind of a weird topic, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, it's a topic that I've been wondering about from a variety of angles for some years. So maybe I'll introduce my conundrum. Like so many of these things, Michael, I think uh, the podcast you do represent the dialogue of people who aren't quite yet sure of the conclusions they're going to come to. And so what I hope we're doing is just like fleshing out a bunch of questions that some of the people listening might help us with as well, because I'm not presenting this as a, as a complete you know, essay that I've finished reading and writing and, and putting footnotes on. But I was also inspired by a recent podcast of yours where you were talking to uh, Dr. Ma and Dan Binsky about their recent Shanghan Lun tradition. And they were talking about this interplay, they were calling it Tao and Shu, the way and the art of practicing herbal medicine. Do you remember kind of that aspect of it, Michael? I do remember. I heard them, it was Dan who mentioned that, and I thought, oh, holy smokes. I hadn't thought about it, but I think that's right. And then I started talking to Stephen about it. Stephen, you remember our discussion about that too, probably. And welcome, Stephen. We've just kind of left you out so far. Absolutely. It's very profound in a way. And uh, I, coming from the Japanese acupuncture side, it might be a little bit different take, but still uh, the fundamentals. At, at the root, this medicine is all the same, uh, whether we're talking about herbs, acupuncture, toina, qigong. It's, yeah, the, we're talking about roots, folks. And that was where I kind of brought up to you, Stephen, instead of the concept of Tao and Shu, which is, you know, this idea that there are certain broad ways and then you have to apply those ways in the clinic. I was talking about the, this kind of originates, I think, especially maybe in the 20th century herbal medicine where they talked about Li, Fa, Fang, Yao. So they talked about the principles the methods, the formula, and the herbs. Maybe we all remember encountering that somewhere in our studies of herbal medicine. Michael, do you remember hearing that at the beginning? Let you kind of go through these steps, right? Yes, for sure I do. Yeah, because the principles are important. And I know, you know, it's funny. There's times when I'm trying to come up with a diagnosis and I can't quite get it. It's eluding me. Even though it's eluding me, if I think about, well, what are the principles that I think I want to apply in this case, the principles will often percolate into my awareness first. And then I like have to reverse engineer a diagnosis out of that. I mean, like everything needs to go down, or we need to rise, or we need to clear dampness, or these kind of fundamental principle ideas. Exactly. Yeah. It's like, or like this person is so dry, I, I need to really like soggy them up a little bit. And so, Stephen, that's what you and I were talking about this kind of contrast between principles, like basic ideas, and then methods, or we might, I think, Stephen, you were also kind of likening this to just technique too, right? Right, because with acupuncture, the prescription could be points, but you're still left with a technique, and it's true for any manual medicine, including a tuina, like, okay, we've got a place, but we need then to do a dance there. And so there's an additional element, uh, whereas with herbs, once you have the right herbs, it should work. So there's another element with uh, bodywork acupuncture. 
And then you were mentioning, Stephen, to cut right to the chase of what I found to be really fascinating and worth thinking about. And I think, you know, you've done decades of work translating uh, Shudo Denme's life work. And you were talking about this idea that in certain threads, certain currents of thinking in Japanese acupuncture, that there's a lot of technique, a lot of methods, but sometimes less fundamental theory shaping it. Is that is that an accurate way of saying that? Or is that how you looked at it? Well, it's very accurate because what happened in Japan in modern times, actually for the last 150 years, when Japan took a strong turn toward modernism, they pretty much ditched the the Lee or they ditched the traditional principles. And this was mostly because Japanese acupuncturists were, were blind. And this wasn't to say uh, they were operating blind, but they had a tradition of blind acupuncturists. But then the government took over and said, all that stuff doesn't matter now. Just go out and do your thing. But we're going to be doing Western medicine. And so the majority of Japanese acupuncturists uh, dispensed with the traditional principles. And uh, only the meridian therapists in modern times for the last 80 years have been actively trying to reincorporate uh, with a modern understanding, the traditional ideas. So basically, they were lost out in the woods for a while without just going on on experience, which is very limited if if you have one lifetime. Whereas our tradition is based on thousands of lifetimes. Shudo kind of comes from the meridian therapy tradition, and there's a few others. Meridian therapy is is a bigger. Uh, organization, but these attempts have been made because these things don't go away. The roots don't disappear. There's, you know, there's books and there's even uh, tools and there's practices that uh, don't go away uh, in folk medicine and and they can be revived. And um, so it's, again, we're traditional medicine and we're always looking back to go forward. And for a while, the Japanese lost that. Such a funny thing. We're like driving using the rearview mirror. So I'm curious, Stephen, it sounds like with meridian therapy in particular, there is a, a reinvigoration, a reintroduction of the Lee, of the principle. It's a way of orienting ourselves. I want to get into that in a moment, but I'm also curious if you aren't working on principle, like what the hell do you lean on? Basically instinct and um, intuition. Yeah, it's basically a trial and error. And you learn very quickly if you're working with people, what's going to work for them or what's not going to work for them. And you stop doing those things which don't work for them. And this is what's interesting about the Japanese styles is that they've really had to toll very closely to how patients are responding. Whereas with Chinese styles of acupuncture, they've relied a lot on principle. And sometimes it doesn't feel like they're really watching what's going happening on the ground except perhaps of course you're always looking for results but in japanese styles they look for immediate changes these could be small as in changes in the pulse or changes in the abdomen something like this but they're looking for signs that it's working whereas with chinese styles of acupuncture perhaps they're letting it wait a week the patient can come back in a week and say well overall it was good or it wasn't good so the feedback loop is a lot tighter, a lot closer with the Japanese styles if they're practicing in a traditional style, which I'll have to remind my listeners that most Japanese 
stylists do not use any old Lee principles or they're lost in trigger point land or myofascia or whatever Western medical model they have, which is, I don't think, as deeply informed by time. It's a useful technique, but it's, it lacks the depth that our medicine has. Stephen, that brings up the thing that I've noticed a lot of, about some of the criticisms of modern acupuncture. And, you know, you're right, it's often a Chinese style of acupuncture, is that, you know, it, there's all this beautiful theory that you can come to that doesn't necessarily get clinical results. And that has been the flip side of this. Like, it, it's this dynamism between the idea that we need to have fundamental principles we work from, but at the same time, we need to have techniques that get clinical results. And, you know, I've seen definitely trends in acupuncture that go towards this is theoretically the absolutely perfect treatment because I can explain it based on all these different theoretical models. But then the person comes back, yeah, maybe even the next week and they're not better. But yet, whose fault is that? Have you, You've noticed that, Michael, I'm sure. Well, yeah. And in, in fact, these days, and, and this is just me and the way that I've learned to work over a period of time, I find that when I'm lost and, and I'm not quite sure what I'm doing in clinic, I will often go to a theory like, well, according to the theory, it should be X, Y, Z. I love when the theories hang together, you know, it's groovy. But when I start thinking, well, according to the theory, now I'm just doing the theory, that means that I've actually lost the thread of what I think Stephen is talking about, which is attending to the patient in the moment. I just did something. Can I hear what the body had to say about that? Does the body like it or not? I have plenty of times I've got a great idea. I mean, a great idea. And I put a few needles in, and then I check the pulse or the abdomen, or I just see how the room feels. And it's like, mm, great idea, and wrong, right? That attending in the moment. Well, it's always that balance, isn't it? It's not one or the other. Between collective experience and personal experience, there's a resonance. But if you go, if you stick with, tradition or collective experience, a consensus, rather than what's right in front of you, uh, you're somewhat lost. And if you ignore a collective experience consensus and just dive into your own personal experience, you're lost also. So it's always that balance. And, and it's, it's a dynamic feedback loop. And we talked about going back to go forward. It's left brain, right brain. You're trying to go from structure to Experience is always raw, and there's, there's so much in a, in, in a clinical experience that's going on. And we need to distill it or extract certain parts of it. We can't deal with everything at once. And uh, that's the wisdom of our, our tradition. It shows us how to, it frames it so that we can be present. Otherwise, it's too much noise, too little signal. And each tradition, herbal or otherwise, has a take on the Lee and not everybody or every group uses a tradition in this, the, the Lee in the same way. Uh, in other words, it's a different angle. The Lee or, or the tradition is huge, like the elephant going back to that metaphor. And it's just that knowing that there is a greater truth that can't be grasped in one setting. And if you do that, it's always limited in a real setting and uh, that each tradition has a way of, of framing it so that you don't have to be touching the whole elephant in a sense and getting lost away from the actual experience of sitting here 
working with a client and their symptoms or whatever you've decided to address. But it's the balance. Which even, you know, brings me back to looking into this this character Lee and uh, you know, the original meaning of it, if you go like back into the Shouwen Jiezi, the early, you know, dictionaries of Chinese characters and etymology, it was the lines that can be perceived in jade. So if you look at a piece of jade and you see the the cracks and the striations within jade, that was the original meaning of Li in the earliest era. And then it really, you know, again, I was kind of reviewing a little bit of the history of ideas here. And in the Song Dynasty, the so-called Neo-Confucians began to use this concept of Li, which we translate as principles often, these patterns, we could almost say, as the fundamental thing that you're supposed to investigate as a scholar. So you're looking for these fundamental principles, and in some ways it supplanted the idea of Tao. And then it was almost like the Chinese version of logic. But like you said just then, Stephen, there's still this concept that keeps coming up throughout the history of ideas, not only in East Asian medicine, but in, in China in general, that there can be different ways to perceive the same situation. And that's why the word logic or even the word theory, you know, in modern Chinese, li lun, or is using that term li, and then it's like dissertations on li, and that we call that theory. But there's somehow this, this interesting contrast also between the idea that you can have Japanese acupuncture, Chinese acupuncture, different approaches, and still see the same elephant and describe it different ways. And this has been a great tension as Chinese medicine has intersected with modern medicine, I think, too. Yeah, that's fascinating how the jade and um, looking at the striations or the lines. So in other words, you can notice many things, including the felt sense of, of a jewel, but it's something that's seen. And furthermore, lines are more left brain than circles. Nothing in nature is really a straight line. But it's interesting that a certain aspect of, of that jade is highlighted in doing that. And this has happened in the West as well, is looking for the fundamental principles in the universe and the uh, Aristotle and all, all of them were looking for what underlies the phenomenal experiential universe, which is just so chaotic and constantly changing. It's the same effort. But that's what I like, is we have one foot in tradition and then we have the other foot in what really this experience feels like, particularly with acupuncture, but herbs too. Uh, what does it feel like to be that patient? And uh, how could they feel better? And what Lee or what principle would apply here to, to take them? They only know that the pain wants to go away or some symptom wants to normalize. But we know that there's a background to that, which means, you know, descended chi or, or heat or cool or basic principles that need to happen before they can feel better. Sort of a kind of a striation behind the whole, something deeper that needs to happen before the manifest experience will change. Well, I think there's also, also something about the Lee, let's say the Lee of a practitioner along with the Lee of the patient. When I think of Lee, and, and, and I love that image, striations in a piece of jade or the grain in wood, you're looking at the unique character of what makes something what it is. And I think this very much fits with how it's helpful to approach patients in clinic. Like, who is this person? What's their lead? How are they put together? 
How are they configured? Because if we can understand something of how somebody is, I think that helps us to better understand how we can be more helpful to them in particular. You know, the beauty of, of our medicine is, is that it, it's so individualized. And what principle do you use to say what this person is, right? Like, do you use five phase, five elements, six channels? Do you use fluid physiology? It's these different principles. Like, I mean, and this is, this is one of the things that I'm, you know, as, 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 as all of us, as, as maybe educators in this field, I know, Michael, you, you say you're just a practitioner, but in many ways you're an educator and you bring people on here and you dig out all these ideas is I think when we first started studying acupuncture, it was about like, who knows what they're talking about? And the rest of the, everyone else is an idiot. Like, what is the truth about acupuncture, right? And what my research is kind of growing and clinical experience is showing to me that there's these shuapai, the, these currents of thinking. There's different ways of looking at a given patient. And a great physician can try differently, can, can actually change angles at looking at a, at a given patient. And we can all relax and not have to be, uh, you know, addicted to who's the expert here and who's the one who doesn't know what they're talking about. Well, I, there is just that competitive nature that human beings have with each other. This person knows what they're doing. This one doesn't. And, you know, our own ego then gets to come in like, whoa, look at me. I, I can help people. I know what I'm doing. Or you know, God, I remember early in my practice, you know, patients would come in and I've seen this person, I've seen that person, I've done this, I've done that, and none of it worked. And I think, yeah, well, that's because I'm smarter. Watch me fix this. And you guys know where that went. You know, that's just asking for trouble. But, you know, Jason, I think you really put your finger on it here. There's all these differently. In fact, I think as we're talking about Lee here, we're also very, like, quickly moving into the idea of Tao, right? The way, you know, the way is this unfolding thing, experience, perception in the midst of chaos, always changing. You know, we're kind of, at least for me, I'm trying constantly to orient myself in a way that maybe I can be helpful, right? It's like I got a little boat in, in this chaotic sea of the Tao, and when you and I were talking, Stephen, I brought that up and you said you preferred the term Lee to the term Dao for what we're talking about. Do you remember that that idea? I, I do. I do. Because the Dao, as we know, as in the Dao De Jing, it just has such a broader concept. Although I can see the connection, Lee's in modern time and in my understanding has much more logical, much more uh, left brain idea of trying to fathom the mysteries of the universe, but it's not the mystery. And the Tao, to me, seems too close to the mystery. Although, I, definitely, the Li is part of the Tao. There's no question about it. But the Tao is so large, and the Li seems to be somewhat included in it. It's pretty much the same as Chinese, uh, because it followed Chinese history and Chinese thinking and writing. Li would mean logic or reason or theory or the principle it's not different than but what happened is they threw it out they threw the traditional lee out and went straight whole hog for western logic and western reasoning which is always limited because it's based on exclusion it's and and the lee of chinese medicine is based on harmony inclusion of everything and finding the the center the pivot if you will where things can everything can shift around that. 
the Western, you know, whether we look at medicine or other fields, it does things which are very powerful, but the collateral effect uh, is not necessarily good on the environment or our bodies. For instance, if you want to say they have high blood pressure, they just go straight, we'll just lower the blood pressure. But there's collateral, you know, effects that just don't work for the rest of the body because they're they're not including everything. And I think there's a fundamental difference in the Li of our Chinese uh, ancestors that we're trying to somewhat emulate. And, and using that balance between Li and Fa or Shu, it's very important that, that we're, we're walking that line. We're trying to stay in the center, not holding loosely whatever part of the elephant we have, knowing that we have the rest of it. In fact, that was my most amazing insight as, as watching Dr. Shido. I just returned from Japan, was there a week ago. 91-year-old man working, and his body's quite aged and, and uh, difficult to be in, for sure. And I watched him moving energy, and I watched it, especially how his hands were engaging his patients, and they were so soft. And yet his whole body was touching the whole body of the patient at the same That was the most impressive thing to watch because I had the eyes to see it this time. Is It wasn't just about the point about the needle technique. It was that his whole body was behind the needle and his needle was, in effect, kind of wrapping around the chi of the whole patient. And uh, he was in the middle. And again, I think... It's Jong, you know, it's that idea of, of balance or being in the center where shift can happen. And it's good for him. I mean, I believe at 91 years of age, he's still working because he gets benefit from moving chi with his patients rather than it being a one way street where he's doing something. He's not excluding himself in treating his patients. It was very, very beautiful to watch. So, Stephen, what would you think Dr. Shudo would say are some of his lee? Like, how does he talk about that term? Do you Have you had a conversation with him about the term of principles and lee that he starts with? I did. And, and all he said was just keep it simple. And, and then your intuition can engage the, uh, the patient, you know, the multifaceted, you know, because the experience is multifaceted, but you can engage what's going on in front of you. So he, he, he uses the Meridian Therapy Framework, which if you look at it closely, is very simplistic. He says the main thing in acupuncture is feedback. Form a plan of action and, and see how it's going. Keep checking to see how your idea is playing out. So he's, he, he's the idea that don't get too complicated. So, Stephen, when Dr. Shudo talks about simplicity, okay, that sounds like a great idea. And, and I love the idea. Like, oh, yeah, simplicity. But then very quickly, I end up with the question of what does that mean? Like, what, what is simplicity? How do you know you're working simply? I can't answer for him, only for myself. But I would say that when I'm holding more than two ideas or two things at once. And I think what he means is he has a simple pattern, a four pattern system with Meridian therapy, but oftentimes you, you're not sure if it's this one or that one. And I think what he means is to simply go with what feels probable, possible, 
at that moment and not uh, and, and see, then get feedback. In other words, follow that track for a while. This is something, of course, you could do with acupuncture, but with herbs, um, it's not so so easy because, of course, you're going to prescribe something that's going to be used for a while. But again, not to go too deeply into the thought process of why a certain diagnosis is right or wrong, but, but just trying it out. And, uh, and then he can do this and, and then get the feedback from the pulse or the abdomen. You were talking about this earlier, that it's a matter of attending in the moment. You do something, check. Did the body like that or not? Did, did that seem to help? Which to me seems like kind of a refinement you, you may not know the diagnosis at the outset, but it's something that kind of comes into focus as you attend to your patient. I mean, all of a sudden I have this image of like an old Polaroid photograph. Do you guys remember those old cameras where you take a picture and you pull it out and it'd be like blank and then we're like slowly you, you, you'd watch it develop right in front of your eyes. Stephen, as we're having this conversation, I'm imagining diagnosis to be a little bit like that as you attend to it follow, 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 follow. Yeah. Again, it kind of goes, harkens back to what I talked about in the last conversation with you, Michael, is how you can be with uncertainty and still go forward a little bit. And you don't stay in uncertainty because there's a result from your action. And um, it's tracking more closely. It's a matter of attention uh, rather than paying attention to your thinking about it, you're, you're paying attention to the result. And it takes a little bit of humility because like you, I want to know the right answer and I want to do the right thing and then move on. And it, just that ability to listen and wait for the response of the body, I think is how our medicine started. And now, because we have a lot of experience, we, we're paying less attention or we're paying more attention to principles or ideas about the patient rather than what's actually going on. And it's always a dance because if you, pay, if you don't pay any attention to the principle or the diagnosis, then you can just go off into some strange places, which I don't know, you should be uh, very careful about that because it becomes, you know, self-fulfilling. You just start to create your own idea about what's going on. And you have to be really careful. I think anchoring ourselves in the group consensus is always a useful thing to do. Uh, and that's why we read classics or we'll have this discussion is we keep referring back to each other. Am I making sense here? And if you're not, you have to think about that reality too, because it's not just, oh, my patients are getting better, and you know, I'm just, I've got this fantastic intuition, and I'm always spot on because things shift for me. It, it can become very, um, well, just self-serving, just a, a closed feedback loop. Delusional, maybe. Yeah, it's it's a closed feedback loop of you know convincing yourself that you're right. Well, but it seems to me, Stephen. It's not a closed feedback loop because if we're paying attention to our patient and actually taking that information in and allowing that to guide us, 
then we're not just in our thoughts and doing this amazing, insightful thing. We're in that moment with the patient following them, it seems to me. Jason, I'm, I'm curious. Well, the elephant in the room that we're all dancing around, back to your, we're going to have an, a lot of elephants in this room, Stephen, with this, all these different elephant metaphors in our conversation, but is is palpation, right? It comes down to getting out of your hand, head and into your hands in all these different ways. I think that the great feedback loop thing, whether it's taking pulse, whether it's palpating in all these different ways, like we are not just doing protocols in the clinic. You know, protocols are the enemy, I would almost say, to the practice of acupuncture in the way that 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 I guess takes principles seriously. And so we have to find ways to be in our own bodies and feel what's going on. Maybe that is the core principle. The core Lee is to be here now when you're working with a patient and not just doing uh, some textbook thing or some study said that this point pair does this or that. It's got to be somehow based on a palpatory experience. I feel like that is, you know, maybe when we're talking about Lee, I would like all of us, if we can, to throw out what are some of the core principles that maybe we agree on. And and one, I think, is palpation. And maybe another is taking the concept of chi seriously as a thing that has usefulness in the clinic and that is investigatable in a in a Chinese medical scientific way. Like what are the yin and yang? Like what are the principles that might be left out if we're not careful as Chinese medicine moves forward or East Asian medicine, including Japanese medicine, moves forward? Well, I've heard, now I don't know, I'm not involved in any schools, but I've heard from other colleagues that there's plenty of schools they barely teach pulse diagnosis. Much more focus on understanding things from a Western medicine point of view. I don't know if that's true or not. Kind of went down that route in the 20th century. Yeah, I mean, that was what the 20th century education in modern China was a lot of that. And from my experience talking to colleagues in Beijing, that's exactly, they hit the wall and, you know, there's now this renewed interest in the classics. It just goes in these circles. Stephen, you were about to say something too, I think. Hello, everyone. Anne Cecil Sturman here. A working knowledge of the eight extraordinary channels from the unbroken oral tradition of acupuncture is valuable beyond words. The power of these channels is tremendous if the practitioner has well-integrated diagnostic, theoretical and practical skill. You'll be familiar with Dumai, the governor channel or the sea of Yang, the primal reservoir of Yang which ultimately finances all movement and growth. But this channel also governs the ability to self-determine. The psycho-emotional presentation of your patients can be matched to a classical activation of this channel, clearing impedance in the free flow of yang chi to body, mind and spirit. I'd like to share with you the marvelous potency of the Do channel in a full-length live treatment video from the seminar I taught last year in Melbourne, Australia. It's at ancecilsturman.com forward slash sinews2024. Click on the jump to free teaching button or see the link on my Instagram page at ancecilsturman. Thanks, Michael. Back to you. Yeah, well, let's ground this conversation because I really think you're taking us to an important point, palpation. And um, the Japanese uh, brought palpation in in a big way, but it's it's just so there's so many facets to palpation. So the Lee, for instance, the grounded conversation in the Lee of channels, the twelve channels or the fourteen channels. We'll keep it simple that way. There is 
these flows, these energy uh, pathways that need to be balanced for health. And everything, at least for acupuncture, uh, comes home to channels. And why are we palpating? To find the channels that are off balance. So that Lee frames everything we're doing. And it, it's the beauty of the channel system. And when you throw that out, uh, you're lost in a lot of, well, it could be fascia, it could be Western medical ideas, it could be blood vessels, it could be nerves, it could be many things. But the channel system are, are like those striations that tell us, okay, let's follow this track. But of course, when I'm palpating, it's not a line. It's got a certain width, and that width would change depending on where you are. And what about the depth? Um, so there's a whole, even though we have a lee of a channel system, and we know roughly where it is, we have to go feeling for it. And again, how each person, your hand is different than mine, and your technique would be different than mine. Yet, we're all going toward that ineffable channel. We're organizing our palpation around the channels. And I think that's really huge. Otherwise, again, going back to my own sense of, oh, well, I feel the chi here. I feel it, uh, this there and other thing. It's great. And maybe you're getting good results with your patients too, but who can you teach? How can it be carried forward? It's going to die with you. You had this wonderful thing, but this, you know, maybe it really worked for a lot of people. But you can't teach um, that kind of thing. But the, the channel system, if you really take it to heart and work with it however you want to palpate and however you want to do the needles with, you know, how, how you want to engage the channels with your needles, you can talk about it. Even Chinese styles and Japanese styles can talk because we have this Li or the principle of channels. I, I think it's beautiful. And so you, you talked about palpation. You but yeah, the channels is the wisdom that will always kind of revolve around. And thank goodness they are palpable. You know, I mean, you can use different ways to investigate what the heck the channels are. But with relatively simple education, you can start to feel that there is something in the body that is a little different than the blood vessels and the nerves and the and even the fascia itself. But it, it, it's not that difficult to use that principle of palpation and then build many different methods to inter interact with it, right? There's so many different different people you've had on here talking, Michael, about all these different concepts of like acupuncture and what the heck we're doing in the clinic and all these ideas. But if I guess we can begin to agree on some core ideas that maybe chi is something that might be worth investigating, that the channels might be, you know, actual things in the body that have some physiological function of their own that, that is a little bit undiscovered in the modern era. And then the methods are myriad from that. I mean, that sounds like the core of the medicine as I think it's been taught, isn't it? It would be historically the case, but maybe not the case in modern education all the time. And I think... You know, you're, the, the very name of this podcast, Geological, is implying that you take the concept of chi pretty seriously if you put it in the name of your podcast. And so, we, you know, there can be different currents of thinking. There can be currents of thinking that says the channels are BS, they don't exist, there's no such thing as chi, and that is that could be a legitimate thing that thrives in the modern era too. But I, I think we would be remiss, and Stephen is saying this in so many ways, if we don't 
also take the idea of chi seriously and and be a current of thinking that that tries to take these classical concepts and and look backward to move forward right just like what you're saying it's like we're not trying to recreate the han dynasty we're just trying to learn from centuries of experience and see what we can teach modern medicine uh today sure well there's what came through the han and the song and the tongue i mean there's all all these experiences that have come down through time and culture. We've got words or ideas like chi. I'm gonna, I want to stick with this for just a second. To, to me, it's a little bit hilarious that the podcast is named Chiological because so often I think we have this fetish around chi. And I, and I really didn't want to have something like that in the name of the podcast because it's just so damn cliché. But the name Geological came about because I had a patient come out of a treatment one day. This, this woman is a poet um, as well as a blacksmith. Amazing. She comes out one day after a treatment and, and she just goes, Michael Max, what was that? That was absolutely geological. I'm like, geological? That's a weird word. And I just wrote it on a post-it note and I stuck it in my desk because it was funny. Geological. On one hand, we have this very like mystical, like, ooh, chi, it's this like mystical thing. And then logical, that's the opposite side of that. All right. But here we are talking about Lee. So this is a good time to mention it. I just thought it was a funny word and I liked it. And then later I was looking for a name for the podcast and I thought maybe that'll fit. So, I mean, that's where that comes from. But I want to come back to chi for a second because. Uh, it seems to me that chi is the most misunderstood aspect of our medicine and the like most impossible concept to translate into English. Because it seems in English, we're always trying to nail things down. I don't know about Japanese, Stephen, but I know in Chinese, they're often not trying to nail things down. They're trying to kind of leave things a little bit loosey-goosey. Jason, does that... Does that ring true for you, or is it just because my Chinese sucks? Well, well, no. I mean, of course it rings true. I, I mean, but man, you're touching a third rail here. Okay, so we're going to all try to define chi? I'm here to touch the third rail. Why not? I mean, what? Is it going to kill me? Well, it might kill me. We'll find out. This could be the last episode of Geological. No, I think we're dancing around chi, and I, I'd lo- I love this dance um, because it is a very right brain it's a total experience thing and words by nature are limited and the West really likes to, uh, you know, define things more clearly. And we have the culture that we have, but in the East and in China and Japan, which is my experience, they're, they're wonderful because they can get really, really um, obsessive compulsive about nailing things down. On the other hand, they're willing to leave certain things be chi-like. And in Japanese understanding in modern times, chi is given the role of emotions. Emotions are something that come and go. You can't control them and they're always changing. And um, what are you going to do? We're human beings. We have them. So in modern times, more than even in in Japanese uh, medicine, chi is seen as the stuff between people. But it can be the chi of nature too. But it's it's a feeling that arises, which you can put words on this. Like I'm really enjoying the chi between us right now. But 
you know, I could go on for an hour about this, but I'll never grasp it, but I'll, I'll dance around it. So chi has a lot to do with emotionality or connectivity or the experience of being with. And yes, it's everything else too. Mm, the experience of being with. Jason, what about you? I mean, the main thing to say is I probably couldn't summarize it better than Stephen just did. But I mean, I guess of all the things you said, the one word that if I had to say a one word way of conceptualizing chi, it's connectivity. This and and then all the implications that might mean. And I think it it also brings up the idea of diagnosis and this idea of patterns. And a pattern is perceiving a connectivity of all these different signs and symptoms to each other. So it's a chi mechanism that has some sort of imbalance. So this idea that there's a 10,000 foot level to look at the body, that there's connectivity between all the organs and, and the environment at large and each other and the emotions, as you're saying, Stephen, I think instead of calling it electricity or something mysterious, it's this idea that everything is kind of woven together by something. And maybe that is chi. And of course, chi means different things in different contexts, different centuries throughout the history of ideas. There's no way to nail it down into any one concept without being too narrow, right? And that's that's the trouble, right? Yeah. Jason, I want to just put a pin in that for a moment. I remember when I was studying Chinese in Taiwan, this was before we had electronic dictionaries and stuff. So I was schlepping around a big dictionary and I remember looking up Chi one day, right? The character. And then you get to see all the different binomes that go with it. It went on for pages. Because Chi is so often used to interweave things or talk about some kind of ephemeral nature, some sort of changing, like it's both changing and constant. It's like the constant changing. Hua. There you go. You know, we could go on for a long time about chi, and, and I don't want to get too fixated on it. Nature of chi is to move, after all. I, I, I'd like to pivot a little bit, no pun intended, to talking about shu, right? Like, like technique. As in art, as in ishu. As in art or as in technique, right? Because so often we get very caught up in, well, I do this kind of acupuncture, or I do this kind of, you know, whatever. To help my patients, we get, I know for myself, at times I've gotten very caught up with, I'm this kind of practitioner, or I do this kind of a thing. Or, you know, you see people all the time, well, we've got this method that we use and it's the best because, you know, X, Y, Z. But I'd like to look into that a little bit with you two guys, the, the shoe, the G shoe. Well, Stephen, you said so much. I mean, again, I have to return to the image you just created by describing last week and the last few weeks watching your, your teacher, Dr. Shudo, work. And as you said, it was the whole body interaction. I mean, where is the art in that? It's everything, right? How do you talk about the art of 50 years of practice? Yeah, well, you go back to the basics and he keeps talking about the hands and um, how your hands have to be sensitive and how you have to cultivate your hands to hold a needle in a way that is harmonious for the patient. And um, he's finding in modern times that his technique has changed. And this is what's amazing is that even the idea that there's a one correct technique that's going to work for everybody or in all times is flawed because 
we're changing. And he found in his technique that as he was working with patients, his needles became more and more superficial. And um, he started using more points because he wasn't retaining needles. He, he didn't, he could just dance on the points rather than actually uh, leave the needle for, you know, 10 or 15 minutes as he used to do. But how, I think you can't really get the feeling for how Dr. Shido is with his patient until you spend time just following his approach for a while. And I think that's what each person has to do is to find somebody that they deeply respect and trust and uh, just follow his dance or his, his method for a while until it becomes your own. And then you can um, make it your own. In, in the Japanese Zen tradition, they have uh, three stages of learning, basically. And one is, the first one is adhere. And the second one is to break the mold or to break away from your master or your teacher's pattern. And the last one is to create or to uh, create a, another level, that, which, which you know is alive in your experience. In other words, you create a new style or a new, a new, what we call shoe or new technique that's suited to you and your patients. This reminds me of, I think it was Sonny Terrell, the famous uh, saxophonist. I, I might have this wrong. We need to look this up and fact check me. But he had what he called the rule of jazz, which is exactly what you just said, Stephen. And he said it's it, when you're learning. Uh, you know, jazz, first you imitate, then you assimilate, and then you innovate. And those three steps are, seem really similar to what you just said about the practice of of East Asian medicine and acupuncture, right? Amazing, because that's what I love about Lee is we can throw different words at it, but the striations, we're looking at the same piece of jade, and we might call that line something, or but still, the, there's a core experience in, in the collective that agrees how things work, how we learn, how we how we share information, and how we grow into the next stage of experience. And I love, you know, I love how that correlates. And, and so the chi does exist. There is something more fundamental than the descriptions of them. Well, to go back to one of the things we began with, and what I've noticed, and, you know, practicing now for over 20 years, so not not as long as most, but long enough to start to kind of have some ideas as, as, as you guys have, uh, you know, when you were practicing for 20 years, is that at first it's all about theory. At first it's all about Lee. And what I realize now is if you don't locate that point correctly, if you don't find that space properly and interact with it, then all the Lee doesn't matter. So... But on the other hand, getting to the good point requires some Lee. So you need the theory to find the point, but if you don't find the point and get some sort of interaction with it, then it doesn't matter how beautiful the theory is. And this is the great conundrum of the practice of this medicine. And then to be added on to the great confusion that there's many different theories. And so for new students, it's really confusing. I mean, I'm sure it's overwhelming, really. Of course. Well, I, I suspect we're always looking to orient ourselves in a way that allows us to connect. Stephen, you just said something about Dr. Shudo to hold the needle in a way that is harmonious for the patient. I want to say that again. I, 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 this really went through me. And I think you all 
all y'alls out there might need to hear this again. Hold the needle in a way that is harmonious for the patient. Not good for you, not in line with with a theory of what your teacher said, harmonious for the patient. I mean, notice where that takes your attention when you think about it this way. What are you attending to when you look to hold a needle in a way that's harmonious for the person you're looking to help? Well, it, it, to me, it, it, it leads back to how can I be with this in a better way? In other words, it's a whole-bodied inquiry. It's not even a, a mental inquiry. Your, your whole being inquires as to where I can be with this needle, this person, this moment that would bring the best, uh, I wouldn't even say the best result, because the result is that harmony. Where is the best place now? And to me, that can only lead to positive outcome, because you're not in there saying, I want something to happen here. You're saying, I want to be in the best place for this person. And and there's sort of a selflessness there. There's sort of a total engagement there. And we, we when we're palpating, we call it listening, but it's still a process of listening as we invite the chi, or basically saying inviting that connection and the potentiality which that connection contains. It's the positive potential. Every conversation, every interaction, every touch has a potential of sparking something as this conversation is for me it's like wow i'm it's really lighting up a lot of ideas of how i want to practice and how i want to teach because the more we we clarify what we're doing uh the the better we get at it and i think that's what's happening here so i really appreciate this conversation yeah can i can i see that pattern in the stone and what you just said, Stephen, also I think brings up another principle to a lively practice of East Asian medicine. It's this constant curiosity and willingness to change what you're thinking. I mean, like you said, this converse, like you, you could be a teacher where you just stand forth and you say, I've got it all figured out. Here's what you do. And it's kind of a one-way street. And there's this difference that in our practices, this is as teachers and as practitioners, that it's a dialogue where you're constantly willing to reevaluate and, and think about these core principles and not hold on to them. And I mean, that's that's why it's so fun to talk to you guys. And I'm trying to always keep that that attitude alive in myself of, I mean, my teacher, Dr. Wang Ju, basically said the best place you could be mentally in the clinic is curious. Like that curiosity was what he felt like. Uh, would be, you know, engendering the most likely situation to have that interaction you're talking about, Stephen. In recent years, the Sa'am acupuncture style has generated significant interest and a loyal and growing following. In the Sa'am approach, a precise diagnosis leads to a four-needle treatment to address the five element and six chi imbalances in the body. The four needles target the controlling and generating cycles. It's common using this method for the needle sensation to be stronger than in many other styles. Thus, the choice of needle becomes important. The Unico brand of needles lends itself to both strong and gentle techniques. These superior needles are made of uncoated Japanese surgical stainless steel and feature the best guide tube on the market with its unique beveled edge. 
Additionally, Unico needles have a tensile property that helps with freehanding needles into Jing well points and allows you to more easily feel the arrival of qi. Blue Poppy is the exclusive importer and distributor of Unico needles. Use the code QI2024 to save 10% off Unico needles at www.bluepoppy.com. You'll be glad you did. Jason, I was thinking about Dr. Wong here, and maybe, uh, I don't know if this is too out of the box to ask you, but what do you suspect he would have to say about Lee? Well, I mean, I think actually Stephen hit upon it earlier. I think the fundamental, again, if we, and I think that people can choose different principles to emphasize as in the front burner for the, their clinical self. But for him, it was the reality, the palpable physiological reality of the channels. I think that was the fundamental thing that that he would orient himself around. That, as he used to say in Chinese, "Guren bu pian woman." You know, the ancients weren't kidding us, or you could translate that differently. <laughs> <laughs> the ancients weren't lying. <laughs> they weren't lying, bu pian woman. Like they were, you know, they had something to say. Like, and he's like, like for those of us looking at the classics, our job is to take everything they're saying seriously. But on the other hand, with a grain of salt, try it out in the clinic and see if you get some results from it. But a lot of times when you think when you're reading the classics, this is complete BS, it doesn't make any sense. It might be you just didn't know what the heck they were talking about. And so I think, and for him, the fundamental thing was about the channels as a, as a physiological system in the body. It's like a real part of physiology, a fluid physiology within the, you know, surrounding all the structures of the body, I think. That would be the core Lee, if I had to just off the top of my head say it. From what I've been hearing in this conversation, it sounds like that jibes a lot with what Stephen's been talking about in terms of getting your hands on people and exploring that actual sensate reality. Stephen, do I have that right? Yes. Um, and again, the, the key is... No, having teachers and having access to classics that keep you humble and curious at the same time. Uh, so you don't get locked into thinking, I've got it. You know, I've, I've figured this all out, which you probably have. If you get good results, that particular situation, you might have nailed it. But the next time, you know, that's the good thing about clinic is it keeps you humble. But with that humility, you can go back to classics, and Dr. Shido is constantly referring back to the classics, trying to read the original in Chinese as a way of reminding himself that it's an endless process, not something where you can just draw a conclusion and say, that's that's good enough. We'll just stick with this Lee. Uh, I've, I've figured out the principle, and I've, I've figured out a practice that works enough. This, this constant process of refinement in actual practice um, that I just love. And I, I noticed that about Dr. Wong too, that his theories were constantly evolving. And he was even using foreign students as Dr. Shudo does. He loves to come up against other people and other ideas to test you know, the, the work that he's doing. Does it stand up to this way of looking at things? So both things, looking, looking into the Lee looking back toward the Lee and then going forward into the experience of the moment and the techniques you're delivering and their results. 
and some curiosity is helpful. And knowing that, you know, that you as a practitioner are going to continue to evolve and change. You know, guys, I, I wish I could get it so nailed to the point, no pun intended, that people would come in, I could look, oh yeah, I do this, I do that. I mean, it, it, it's, it's kind of nice. The ego certainly likes it. It would make the day a little easier if I didn't have to constantly be trying to engage something new in some ways. It's nice to fall into road, especially if you can be effective. I'm a little bit lazy. If I can get things to work easily, I like to. That said, clinic and patients and people, that ain't the way it works. Now, there's also a part of me that loves that I've got no idea what's going to happen next in clinic. You know, the, the flip side of that is, now what? Because, I mean, we've all had this experience. Someone comes in, they said, whatever you did last time, life-changing. Please do it again. And we know that is not possible. You could do that same treatment, but it's not the same treatment. You could do the same points, but those points are different now. It's already moved on. It's, it's, it's different. And that, that, to me, is the joy of the practice. Stephen, you were talking about staying humble. That's the part that keeps me recognizing how much I don't know because I can easily take a past experience and try to template that on a person in front of me in this moment. Sometimes it can help to some degree. And sometimes it'll take me further afield. This is, this is why I'm in real agreement with you characters Putting my hands on people and allowing the hands to attend and have something to say about the matter is very, very helpful. Yeah, we need to be kind to ourselves because, you know, it, it is a daunting task if you're always pushing yourself into uncertainty, that negative capability to be in the unknown. But that's the nice thing about Lee and the nice thing about the experience of our practices, we don't need to spend all that much time in uncertainty. We could, uh, even with Dr. Shido, he, he talks about his treatments and he says, you know, I'm not really attending to the points that we talked about the experience of being with or finding harmony as we, we hold the needle on the patient. He doesn't do that, but for about, I'd say maybe 10 minutes out of a 30 minute treatment or even less. And he has what he calls flow, where he's just, once he's got the pattern, uh, he, he has pretty much standard treatments, although he relaxes enough so that it's different for everybody. It doesn't play out to become the same type of insertion. Like you said, you can't step in the same river twice. But he does have places where he's relaxed and not really trying to feel into the point. In other points where he's saying, this is an important point. I really want to feel that she arrive here. This is an important point. I really want to feel that she release here. He's really focused. And he really doesn't know. He's really waiting for that to happen. Other times he's just spending less than sometimes five seconds or less on a point. It's becoming more like a massage for him than a, a retained needle. Although he does retain needles, it's the exception, not the rule. But giving yourself a break. He sounds kind of jazzy. Improvisational. You know, there's an improvisational nature to a day at work, isn't there, on the good days? Yes. 
for sure. Well, gentlemen, I I think we're getting close to a point where we need to land this thing. Take the elephant out for a walk. Both of them. There's a few in the room. There's a few in the room. We may have to come back in and reinvestigate some of this, Mitchell. We've spent a lot of time here today with Lee. I, I thought we might get into some other aspects as well. I'm just wondering, from your perspectives, after the hour we've spent together, if there's any new insights or maybe something you'd like to investigate in clinic in terms of this idea of Lee after our time together here today? I would say for me, the the thing that I really value about listening to the conversations you have here and my interactions with other practitioners and is this idea that all of us have to keep shifting and changing and that once you think you know what you're doing, once you think you have the principles, you might be in danger of of calcification. And so it, it's this dynamism of evolving practice and talking about Dr. Shudo after 50 years and my observation of Dr. Wong practicing for 50 years that I guess for everyone listening and for me to remind myself after I had a huge clinic day yesterday and you get sometimes in this zone where you're doing the same things and you're not focusing and but yet focusing also means changing it means like being willing to do stuff differently and so I mean, that, that's the one thing that I, I'm very much reminded of by this conversation and others I have. So I thank you for that. Stephen? For me, uh, it's been amazing, but I, I just really feel inspired to actually go back further because, you know, I've been watching Dr. Shido and um, I've been involved in my own experiential technique side a lot, but I'm getting... I know I'm too old for this, but I think I want to go back to the classics one more time, both the Chinese ones and some of the Japanese classics, to uh, reinvestigate what this meant. You know, in other words, reflecting back so that I can go forward again, because I have a sense that I'm I'm too far off into the experiential aspect, which is important, because I've been trying to pull the profession toward palpation toward the subjective experience, which is great. But me personally, I want to go back to Lee and the classics uh, to just get some sense, aha, okay, I'm on track or I'm not on track. I'm really inspired. You know, do you guys know what my favorite classic is? And I'm not kidding. I'm not making a joke. (laughs) This is going to sound weird. My favorite classic is Goldilocks and the Three Bears. <laughs> I, I'm i serious. I know you guys are laughing. I laugh at myself when I think about this. That's amazing. I come back to it again and again and again and again. I think it's, a, it's an incredible, simple classic of Chinese medicine. Classic of enoughness. Yes. Is it too much? Is it too little? Is it too hot? Is it too cold? Again and again... I find if, if I will come back to some very basic fundamentals, and seriously, my my favorite set of fundamentals is Goldilocks and the Three Bears, because it gives me a flexible framework that matches the reality of what I see in clinic. And to hold that is kind of a, a ground to stand on. So that I've got something to make sense of as I put my hands on people. I feel like my palpatory skills are awful, but I continually am drawn to this aspect 
of engagement, I think because I don't do it so well, and it seems so important, I just won't let it go. So I, I try to keep it simple, basic framework, and keep asking that question, what is this? What am I noticing? What might this mean? And, and, and for me, it always comes down to at the end of how might this be helpful for the person that I'm working with. That's really great, Michael, because, you know, you talked about it's hard to be simple, but that's right on, but especially because talking about classics or talking about palpation, it, it can get quickly complicated. So thank you for bringing it down to that Goldilocks principle. That That's great. Simple minds have simple methods. I, I'm telling you. Well, three dancing bears on your clinic door then. I should put some of those like, uh, you know, Grateful Dead dancing bears on the clinic door. That might not be a bad idea. (laughs) That may be what they meant. Yeah. Okay. I I think I might have to do that. Gentlemen, as ever, this has been an absolute delight. Thank you, Michael, for bringing us here and taking the time. Thank you, Stephen, for telling us all those great stories of your recent trip. Oh, thank you guys for giving me the opportunity. This geological is is amazing. You know, the the stuff that happens here is transformative. I really have gotten a lot of this conversation. Thank you again, Michael. Thank you, Jason. One of my favorite things as a student was puzzling over medicine as I was learning the fundamentals. As a practitioner, I'm no different. I love puzzling over a medicine, and it's even better to do that in a company of friends who have an explorative mindset. So often, it seems, we as a profession are determined to be right instead of engaging curiosity, more interested in having answers, evidence, and protocols than in sitting down with what we don't quite understand yet and work through the gaps in our understanding. It's comforting to have a sense of knowing, but treading at the edges of knowledge, I suspect that's how we gain more. I so enjoyed this virtual walk with Jason and Stephen, and if you did as well, then check the back catalog for other conversations that I've had with them. Thanks as always for listening. If you liked this conversation, if you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight, share the episode with your friends. If you want to support Geological, there's just one way to do that. It's by going to the website and becoming a member or leaving a one-time contribution today. Well, folks, that's it for today. Join us again next Tuesday for another conversation that connects up the voices of our community. (laughs) 